Neil Langto is a historian and author of The Approaching Storm, Roosevelt, Wilson, Adams, and their clash over America's future. This is Neil Langto. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. Great. So I'm here with Neil Langto. Uh, sir, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me on your show. Uh, so you wrote a book called The Approaching Storm, Roosevelt, Wilson, Adams, and Their Clash Over America's Future. W- one thing I want to say, uh, just starting this off here, I am so glad when, when I first started reading your book, the way it begins. It begins the way I think every history book should begin with a strong prologue that introduces you to the characters who will be the center of the story and that grips you in and then afterwards you can sort of fill in the backstory, et cetera. There are, I've opened up history books like a biography of Napoleon before where the first sentence is, Napoleon was born in 18, I'm like, who, who, who is this for? How did this get published? Um, so thank you. Thank you for saying that because <laughs> as, as, as a writer, it's, it's, it's hard to come up with something that's a, a compelling way to start your subject. And I have to say, I did think long and hard how can I get these three into the prologue? And I finally came up with the progressive, uh, the progressive party's foundation in 1912, when Jane Adams, who's one of the three figures pro, uh, profiled in this book, um, nominates Theodore Roosevelt for president. So that's that gave me a nice jumping off point for the book. And from there, I moved to Woodrow Wilson being uh, informed of his nomination for the Democratic side that day. So I got all three into that prologue, and. It was not easy to do that for the other books I've written too. I've had to give it quite a bit of thought to a way to, as you said, introduce the reader to the subject without simply starting in the most boring way possible to say, here's the beginning. He was born in this day or she was born in this day. Yeah. And, and these three characters who formed the core of the book, um, I'm curious, what made you want to, to include these three? I can understand on some level um, Woodrow Wilson and Theodore Roosevelt, their presidents, there have been tons of history books written about them. Jane Addams is a well-known figure, um, but why package the three of them together? Well, I thought it was the best way to tell this story. I mean, this, the story is how we got involved in World War I, which I argue in this book is one of the most important decisions ever made in American history because the entire 20th century was affected by our involvement in the war. If we hadn't gotten involved in World War I, it's possible there might have been a different outcome for the war. As it turned out, with our help, we were, the Allies were able to finally crush Germany, which leads to the Treaty of Versailles, which leads to a whole other situation, which ends up World War II 20 years later. Right. Um, so I think World War I is very, very important. The outcome of the war is very, very important. And we are a major player in that, even though we don't, I think we tend not to realize that in the United States. So I want to tell that story. And I thought the best way to tell it was um, through three characters who would represent uh, different strands of the argument as far as what should America do in response to this war. So Roosevelt has a view, Wilson has a view, and Jane Adams has a view. And they weren't just three random figures. They were three members of the progressive movement. So all the more lean towards the left. They all knew each other, they worked with one another. So they had interactions with one another. So I thought this would be a good way for readers to understand the story uh, without simply laying it out in a chronological fashion, but telling it through a character study of these three individuals. And, and as you said, you begin this book in 1912. And at this time, uh, even though Theodore Roosevelt is in a separate party than Woodrow Wilson, um, and Jane Adams is introducing him. Um, they, they all are relatively on the same page. So they all at least claim to be progressives um, and are moving in that direction. Um, and it's interesting that the war seems to split uh, the three of them. W- w- was that something that could have been foreseen uh, before the, on- the onset of World War I, that s- some kind of conflict um, or international um, affairs would splinter the progressive movement? Well, I think the interesting thing is progressivism, I think is different from today's progressives. Today's progressives tend to agree on, on, on most things. Uh, there's almost a consensus of viewpoints among the modern progressives. 
the progressives of the early 20th century were, were under a big umbrella, but some, sometimes they, one progressive might support suffrage and another progressive might not support suffrage, but they might both agree that uh, big, big uh, corporations should be regulated. So there was, there was overlap in their viewpoints, but also differences. So it was, it was actually inevitable, I think, in some ways that the progressives of the early 20th century would come to disagree about something as, as big as a, as a global war. Uh, and remember, the progressives, a lot of what they were concerned about was domestic issues. And suddenly you have international issues coming to the fore. So the three, these three individuals are going to all have a very different perspective as, as what our responsibilities as far as the war is concerned. I mean, sort of what's happening today in the 21st century where, you know, everyone, you know, what is our responsibility as far as the situation with the Ukraine? Um, you know, where, where do we go from here? What does the United States do in response to this, this, this war? So what President Biden is coping with in the 21st century, which Wilson coped with 100 years ago, uh, a war, seemingly distant war, but one that could have great ramifications. Um, one that we were not necessarily directly involved in, but it's a question of what, what should we do for a country that's been violated uh, by a stronger predatory power? You, you know, in this situation today, of course, it's Russia and Ukraine. In the, in the early 20th century with World War I, it was Germany invading Belgium early in the war, which, which was a very similar a, a parallel between as far as the United States reaction to this is what, what should we do we want to help, but are we truly responsible for these individuals halfway across the world? Does it affect our foreign policy? Does it affect our national security? So I think those were some of the issues that really were paramount 100 years ago that we're still seeing today in the 21st century. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you make that parallel to today, especially with Ukraine, because you saw um, during World War One things like the the effort to uh, help Belgians and, you know, Belgian relief, et cetera. Um, sort of paralleled by the uh, relief efforts for Ukraine. And uh, one of the interesting sort of components of World War I is you have an administration that at least in the beginning seems very strongly to feel that they should stay neutral. And you have Germany continually making these moves that sort of demand an international response where they, you know, slaughter a, a whole town in Belgium or France and suddenly and, and in order to terrorize the citizens into submission. And suddenly people just have to make a statement of saying, okay, this is not right. Um, do you think there's any sense in which American involvement here was inevitable? Or do you think circumstances could have been tweaked just, just so that uh, we would have truly stayed out? When the war first began and, and the Belgian stuff was coming out, I mean, Americans were very disturbed by the by the, the stories of German atrocities. Some of them were, were exaggerated. Some of them were later validated. Uh, but Wilson felt um, weird. It's just we have no obligation to do anything here as much as we may think it's it's it's, it's awful. Um, and he felt that we should remain neutral because his belief was if we remain neutral and remain impartial, we'll be in a position to assist in the peace process and, and really uh, be able to be a major player in, 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 in the reconstruction uh, of Europe after the war is over. So he felt that we can't, we don't want to take sides. Uh, we should remain neutral and thought indeed, at least in the beginning of the war. And Roosevelt, surprisingly, thought Wilson was doing the right thing. In the very early months of the, of the war, he's like, you know, it's unfortunate what's happened to Belgium, but it's what, what he said at the time, Roosevelt says, when giants wrestle, it's inevitable that, so the little people on the bottom are gonna get crushed in the battle. Right. Um, later on, he came to believe, like by the end of 1914, he came to believe that Wilson was totally wrong. Uh, Wilson should have protested the invasion of Belgium. He wasn't saying we should have gone to war. I don't think I don't think anyone was quite supporting that yet. Uh, and the other thing too to, to remember, unlike today where we certainly have a, a, a decent military, in 1914, the United States had a very, very small army of about 100,000 and change or something like that. We weren't in a position to do much militarily uh, as far as in response to the invasion of Belgium. We had a decent Navy, but our army was pretty small. So. That's going to become another issue for Roosevelt, who's going to say we must prepare our military and that Germany could threaten us at some point. And he even says, which is interesting at this time, he says, 
I could see Germany, if they win that war, pairing, winning, win this war could pair up with Japan in the future. And of course, Brute was proved to be correct on that one because uh, they did, of course, did pair up with World War II. So I don't think it was inevitable in the sense that many Americans didn't quite get it as far as foreign affairs were concerned. Couldn't They might have sympathy for the Belgians, but could not see it, it was America's uh, cause. Um, then and now, Americans didn't understand foreign affairs. I mean, you could say the same thing in the 21st century. I don't think most Americans really quite understand what's going on uh, with, with Russia and Ukraine. They, may, you know, they have obviously great sympathy and empathy for the Ukrainian people, but they don't really understand what has led to this. And Roosevelt said this 100 years ago. He said, we as a people are very ignorant when it comes to foreign affairs, because I think most Americans don't see this affecting their lives. Domestic issues, yes, but international stuff, foreign relation, that goes over the head of the average American, I think, today and in 1914. So I think until you could demonstrate to Americans in 1914, 1915, that their safety and their their uh, security is threatened by Germany. There was not, I think, a great groundswell to get involved in this war. It's not like World War II, where it's much more clear cut, where there seems to be a, a real threat to national security. In World War I, it was not nearly as, as, as present. And that's why it's going to be a tougher sell to the American people that this is our fight. We need to get involved in this war. And, and I'm curious, because you do talk about uh, sort of at this point of uh, the 20th century, there is a, a huge influx of immigrants coming from, uh, you know, all parts of Europe, but Eastern Europe as well. So you have these Germans and Serbians, uh, some of whom rally to the cause of their uh, native country. Uh, did, did that complicate matters at all from a policy perspective? I think it did. I mean, that was what Wilson was very concerned about, that there was going to be some sort of domestic, uh, quite say a civil war, but a lot of domestic unrest in the country because of all the immigrant groups in America. Uh, you know, we're a country of immigrants. You know, there were a lot of first and second generation immigrants in the country in 1914. Uh, lots of German Americans who've been here for a while. And most of the German Americans are going to be, they're going to support Germany. It doesn't mean they're disloyal Americans because America's not involved in the war yet. But as far as like rooting for Germany, against uh, Britain, they're going to go, yes, we are for the fatherland, you know, uh, we, we support them. Um, then you have the Irish in America, many Irish are going to be, uh, obviously have very bad feelings about the United Kingdom, and they're going to be supporting Germany. And then you have many Americans on the East Coast who are of English descent or of French descent, they're going to be very, very strongly attached to the Allied cause uh, in, in, during, during this period before we get involved in the war. But I would say for the average American in 1914, um, I don't think there was a strong connection beyond some sympathy, again, with, with the Allied side, but not a desire to get involved in this war. But there were, on the other hand, there was great fascination with the war. Americans couldn't get enough of it. They were, they were loved to read. There were tons of articles in the newspaper every day, and the Sunday papers were printing pictures, and the newsreels were, putting, were, were showing videos in the, in, the, in the theater. So Americans were fascinated with this war, but that did not translate necessarily into trying to uh, get into the war. Now, there were Americans who would sign up to do their parts. It's like what's happening now. I've read the other day of Americans who are going over to fight uh, for, for Ukraine in this, in this, in this uh, current situation. And Americans will do that in 1914 and 15. One of the people I talk about in the book is an author named James Norman Hall, who some of your, some of your, uh, your listeners may know him because he later wrote Mutiny on the Bounty. So he became famous as a novelist. But he was in England at the time of the war. He was from Iowa, and he enlisted in the British Army. The British took him. You know, they knew he was an American. So he served for a while until he eventually got out uh, because his father was sick. And then later on, he joined up with the French and served with them. And then later on, he joined with the Americans. He was in the British, American, and French forces during the war. Uh, and his letters were preserved. And there's something I used in the book as sort of a little one of the side characters of uh, the experiences of, of, of Americans who went over to fight before we were involved because they felt a strong sense that, you know, the German cause is the wrong cause, the Allied cause is the right cause. Um, but there were some Americans who did not feel that way and felt that a pox on both sides, they're both imperialist countries. Uh, you know, the Allies have done their share of terrible things around the world with some of their, their, their colonial, uh, colonialization, things like that, colonization. Um, and there wasn't the connection with Great Britain that there would be in World War II. There were a lot of Americans who got very annoyed with the British during this period because the British were interfering with our trade. So there was 
anger towards the British and of course great anger towards the Germans for sinking ships and causing the deaths of Americans. But there was anger towards the British side and the Allied side for interfering with American trade at the same time. Yeah, and, and one of the things when you talk about the sort of side characters or, or the the minor characters to the the three main, um, you have like one of the side characters who I liked uh, or found interesting was uh, Edward House, um, who seems to sort of early on represent this strain of uh, interventionist idealism of uh, the the quote is he wants a future world with the great powers like the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, quote, uh, join hands in a worldwide policy of peace. And that's his his vision of the future. And I got to ask, I'm someone who grew up in the era of uh, Dick Cheney saying we're going to bring democracy and freedom to Iraq. So I, I would say I'm, I'm typically lean towards skepticism of people making such claims. Um, how heartfelt um, or sincere um, was a guy like Edward House and people like him when, when they said things like, oh, we, we got to get involved in order to make the world a better place? Well, House is a, is a very interesting figure. I don't think there's any other, there's, I don't think there's anyone like him in American history. Because House was, was Wilson's friend, close friend, and he was his advisor. Uh, he was someone who had, he was almost like the most influential person in Wilson's orbit. Wilson didn't think much of his cabinet. I think he thought most of them were, were kind of second, second class men, uh, didn't have much respect for his vice president either. So House fulfilled a, a great role for, for Wilson uh, as being his eyes and his ears. And he entrusted so much to House, particularly with foreign policy. You know, House had these fantasies of, of, of you know, we're gonna bring the powers together. And I, I mean, there's nothing wrong with some of those ideas, but they, they weren't necessarily always based in reality. Um, but Wilson felt comfortable deploying House and sending him to Europe in 19, you know, 14, 15, 16 to talk to the, the, the Allies and, and the Germans too. I mean, he met with, with both sides trying to broker some kind of peace, peace agreement. Um, the thing with House is he fancied himself to be a great sophisticated diplomat, but he really wasn't as sophisticated as he thought he was. And a lot of these foreign diplomats on both sides kind of played him. Um, and, and I think House didn't quite realize that till much later, but, but Wilson trusted him implicitly so much to, to almost an absurd degree. Uh, what's interesting is later on, it's barely only touched on my book a little bit, um, during the Versailles uh, Peace Conference, Wilson will finally, believe, finally understand that House has been doing too much behind his back. House starts to think he knows more than Wilson and Wilson finally cuts him off and their relationship ends. But for, for several years, they were very close. Wilson entrusted him with just about everything. Um, what's interesting about House also is that he kept a very detailed diary. Every night he would go back and he would dictate his, his diary. And he's, he knew everyone, he saw everyone. He was the closest person in, in, to the Wilson White House. Um, and his, his diary is, is a great source for this time, although some of it has to be taken with a grain of salt because House has a bit of an ego. So whenever he writes about anything, it's always through the way he saw things. And he saw himself as this, this wonderful diplomat, this sort of uh, Henry Kissinger before his time, this man on the move who could, who could, who could kind of bring the nations together. But uh, he didn't realize his own flaws. And I think he was, he was someone who was subject to flattery to a certain degree and had, and had an ego. But I, I think he and Wilson did have some ideas about, you know, some sort of, some sort of future world, you know, where the countries would work together in, in a league of nations of some kind. Um, the difficulty would be putting it into play and making it work. And certainly Wilson finds that out after the war is over with, with the league of nations, which we never, the United States decides not to participate in. And that's going to be one of the, the great difficulties in Woodrow Wilson's uh, career and a great disappointment to him. And, and you said that uh, that House got played by diplomats. How so? Well, House would House would go to Europe, went to Europe several times during this period, and you know the the British, you know, British promised all kinds of things that uh, yes, we're we're willing to have uh, Americans come in and help make peace and. You know, we're just waiting for the right time for President Wilson's going to call a priest conference and we're going to bring the bring the countries together. But in, in reality, the British really didn't want weren't really willing to have Americans be the prime mover in any peace conference. Uh, you know, House believed that the British were much more interested in American intervention towards peace than they, they actually were. In reality, 
the British really didn't want the Americans involved in any kind of peace, peace treaty uh, unless they were desperate, unless they were about to be defeated by the Germans. And then oh, only then I uh, would say, okay, yes, yes, Woodrow Wilson, you can come in and sort of call a peace conference and bring them together. But the, American, the, the British didn't want the Americans really doing this. The, 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 the British wanted the Americans to help them win the war. Uh, they did not want them to sort of intervene to, to bring, to force peace. Uh, the interesting thing is that Wilson by 1916, 1917 could have forced the British to, to do more for peace because the United States was financing the war for the, for the British. We were loaning them enormous sums of, of money. Uh, we were pretty much keeping their war effort afloat with our money. Uh, and if Wilson had decided, all right, we're pulling out all of our investments, no more money, unless you go to the peace treaty, you talk to Germany, you try, you guys try to hammer out some agreement, he probably could have done it or at least gotten them pushed in that direction. But he didn't want to do that. Um, the United States was making a lot of money on the war. Um, the Europeans were kind of annoyed with that on both sides. They felt, you know, you, you know we're, we're bleeding each other to death, but uh, you guys are making money selling us arms. You know, they're making huge amounts of money, particularly to the Allies. The United States was selling all kinds of stuff to the Allies. And our economy was booming between 1914 and 17. Once we start shipping all this this stuff to the Allies, and there was some resentment uh, on the on the Allied side and the Germans too. You know that uh, the Americans want to sit there and preach to us about peace, but here they are making millions, if not billions, of dollars on this war uh, right now. Yeah, and, and you mentioned that America was at this time the richest country in the world, but with this um, this business with. Uh, the UK not wanting America to be involved and in sort of setting the terms of peace. Um, would it be accurate to say that America was not yet the most powerful nation? We were not, we were not the most powerful in the, economically. Yes. But as far as our, our military might, which I think is, is important as, as, as a military power, we were not. Uh, and that's where it again comes to Roosevelt's views who felt that, you know, we, we can't do anything around the world uh, we can't we can't be a force for good unless we have a stronger military. Uh, and the United States military at the time of World War One breaking out was was 100,000 men, as I mentioned, it was very, very small. Uh, so that's going to be this whole push, this movement called preparedness that we need to prepare. And Wilson is slow to get behind that. You know, he doesn't really believe we need to we need to do anything uh, until well into 1915, where he finally decides, yes, we have to go in that direction. The thing with Wilson, he was very skilled politically. He saw that the people were, were, were not really in favor of that, at least initially. Um, a lot of Americans feared militarism. You know, they, they just they thought that's European. You know, a lot of a lot of immigrants have come here from countries where they had a military tradition and they come to America to escape that. So he didn't want to come on too strong for you know building up the military or even uh, you know, there was a lot of talk about, you know, young men shall all get some sort of military training. This was Roosevelt's thing as well. He's pushing for that. Um, that takes a while to sink in, in the United States. But in 19, by 1915, 1916, then Wilson is moving in that direction. But not really fast enough, because when we, when we do get involved in World War I in 1917, it takes a while for us to send over a substantial fighting force to Europe. And if we had prepared earlier, we could have sent more men faster. So Roosevelt was, in fact, correct in that regard that we probably should have prepared sooner. The problem, of course, was always getting it through Congress. And there was a lot of people in Congress, a lot of isolationists who didn't want that and weren't going to vote on it, uh, vote for these kind of military buildups that would have been needed. OK, so let's talk a little bit about the peace movement that's going on uh, before we go into uh, World War One. And it seems as though Jane Addams, um, as a figure in this book, is kind of... Um, sort of like represents uh, as a major figure of the peace movement. And one of the things that I forget which which person said this, but s someone who was in on the side of peace uh, said that, uh, quoting, the so-called peace people are the most helpless and inefficient crowd on the face of the earth. Um, that description seems like something that could be plastered on, you know, and, and probably was plastered on people like Occupy Wall Street. Um, and I, I don't know whether or not that's true, but it's certainly the stereotype um, of sort of activist groups. How, how, how true was that statement at the time? Was the peace movement ineffective? I think it was, it was true in 1914. Uh, what you see during this period of 1914, 1917 is a, is a new peace movement in the United States uh, and, and I think globally too. 
Um, up and up until this point, the peace movement was sort of genteel, you know, not particularly aggressive. Um, but once the war begins, you do see some some young blood, a lot of women becoming involved. I mean, Adams is 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 part of what's the, the brand new uh, peace organization, the Women's Peace Party, uh, which has a lot of people who are who are really want to, you know, confront this issue and not, in, as I said, in a in a ladylike manner. Um, and that's why you see someone like Adams. Adams ends up in Europe visiting the heads of state of the warring countries. That's that's something that the peace movement before the war would never have done. And she gets a lot of criticism when she comes home for doing this, that this is not a place for a woman, but we'll, but it's, it's uh, you know, it's citizen diplomacy before the term existed. You know, the idea of a woman going to visit the prime minister of England and going to see the heads of state in Germany in the middle of a war and trying to talk to them about peace is, was, was unprecedented. And they weren't all, you know, they weren't pie in the sky, you know, you know, stop fighting, nonviolence. They, they really believe that there should be international ways to solve these problems rather than blowing each other's heads off. You know, it's the 20th century. Why are we still fighting like it's, it's the 1800s and Napoleonic era? That, you know, there should be other ways. That, I mean, Jane Adams was an internationalist and she believed that, you know, she used an example saying, you know, the, 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 the banking, the financial world is all connected today. In, in the 20th century. So why can't nations be connected similarly so they can solve problems, you know, so they can they can find ways to, to avoid war. So she was very in favor of some sort of movement of a council of neutrals where the neutral powers would get together um, in, in, as a, in a conference and then use that as sort of a ladder to a broader peace conference, which would involve the warring countries. And she wanted the United States, of course, to, the major neutral to be very involved in this effort. And she'll, she'll go to Wilson uh, many times during this period to try to get him to do it. And Wilson will always say, well, that's, okay. that's a good idea, but the time is not right. It's not right. It's not, not time to do this yet. We'll do it eventually. Um, so you have this back and forth with Wilson working with the pacifists and Adams, and they think he's kind of on their side. But they'll find out late that he really isn't on their side as much as they thought he was, that he will, in fact, take the country into war in 1917, which they did not think he would do. They thought he was he thought the same way they did as far as uh, war never being the right answer in these situations. And, and why do you think that these foreign heads of state were willing to meet with her? She was a big name. Uh, and I think once one country did it, they all had to do it. So once once they went once the English the English saw Jane Adams and her it was a, it was a it was a group of other women with her uh, it was like well we the Germans figured you know America's important they wanted to make sure they didn't offend you know both sides are are, are actually fighting a battle for the hearts and the minds of American citizens in this war um, they know how important America is and you know they prefer to have America on their side in this fight than, than not be on the side so they're going to see Jane Adams. They're going to talk to Jane Adams, uh, just like they talked to House. Colonel House, same thing. He goes, he talks, he goes to both sides, uh, sees both heads of state. They see Jane Adams. They talk to them. Um, how frank they were being with either of them is a question. You know, they knew the heads of states of both sides that you know we're going to put our best face forward. We're going to say we're interested in peace, and we, you know, so we'll, it will go back to the United States. This is you know we're not being unreasonable. You know, it's the other side's being unreasonable. So I think that was part of the motivation for for being willing to speak to Americans uh, behind closed doors. I'm sure both sides were very sick of Americans coming there and telling them what to do about the war when they were not fighting in this war at all. They were they were safely three thousand miles away, uh, but here they were sticking their nose in, in it. So that's that's kind of the situation at this time. But I mean, it was remarkable that she was able to talk to them. And you know, when she came back to the United States, Wilson Wilson saw her as well. She talked to Wilson about about what she had learned in uh, Europe and what 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 the what the mindset was among these warring powers. Yeah, and, and you have, I mean, not you, you say Jane Adams is a big name. A lot of big names, it seems like, were involved in, in peace, including like how, how did Henry Ford get involved in this? That was that was a surprising name to me. Perhaps it shouldn't have been, but Henry Ford, he was probably one of the most he was probably the most well-known person in America at that time. He was everyone was fascinated by Henry Ford because you know, of course, Ford had built the Model T. Uh, he, he, he had made the mass production techniques work and 
he, he was now paying his workers $5 a day. So everyone thought Ford was this genius. I mean, he's, he's, he's a billionaire or whatever. He, if not a billionaire, he was incredibly wealthy, one of the most wealthy people on the planet. Uh, he built this business that had revolutionized the world, revolutionized the country. Um, but he was sort of a one-track mind. He was a brilliant engineer, but he wasn't the most learned person. Uh, didn't have much much uh, use for for formal knowledge, but he had this gut instinct against the war. You know, war is wasteful. War is wrong. War it, it it does nothing. It solves nothing. People are brainwashed. So he decided that he was going to sort of throw his money into the peace effort and. He ended up working with the women's peace organizations and Jane Addams and, and putting a lot of money, at least for a while, into it. Uh, one of the things he did was was uh, charter a ship uh, which would go to Europe and hopefully start this council of neutrals uh, in Europe. Unfortunately, the, the, the press kind of turned this into the peace ship, you know, that Henry Ford was some kind of wacko who was chartering a ship to stop the war in Europe. And that's really not what he was doing. But unfortunately, the, the real point of the mission, which was to set up this Council of Neutrals, got lost. And that's what, you know, Adam was very concerned about this because she wanted it done kind of carefully and logically, not this peace ship thing where everyone is just fixating on this magical ship that's going to somehow bring peace to the warring parties. So Henry Ford was very well-intentioned, I think, uh, but didn't really have a sophisticated understanding of what was going on. And he was someone who could lose interest in something very quickly. I think by 1916, he started to pull away from the whole, his involvement in the peace movement. And then by early 1917, he pulls out entirely, which was very disappointing to a lot of the pacifists who felt that, you know, at, that, that Henry Ford had not you know, really always been uh, as, as dedicated as they hoped he was going to be in this effort. Um, but he is someone who is is quite interesting in some of his viewpoints. And in some ways, he was, as I mentioned in the book, he was ahead of his time in some ways. You know, he was someone who believed that Americans ate too much. He believed that smoking was not good for you. Uh, he believed that workers should be paid a little bit more. Uh, on the other hand, he had a, a, already was demonstrating the anti-Semitism that made him uh, quite infamous in the 1920s. He was, he was already showing signs of it at this point. Uh, when some, one of the pacifists uh, go to visit him at this point to try to talk to him about getting some money, he says, I know what caused the war. It's one or two Jewish bankers. So he's already got that, that mindset in his head. And as I said, he was a very uneducated person who was brilliant when it came to engineering and things like that, but not someone who was well-read. Uh, and that's why he tended to have some of these, these very simplistic and sometimes abhorrent viewpoints. Well, I'm curious, at this time uh, of American life, we see this today where someone can be a billionaire engineer, a lot, a lot of like tech um, world people who clearly are very intelligent, but in certain areas, they may be less well-informed and yet feel free to make bold statements. Um, but a lot of people still listen to, to those to those people. That was exactly true with Ford, to yeah. interrupt you, because no, no there's, a, there's a quote in the book from Roosevelt, and Roosevelt said something like, he said, um, you know, Ford knows nothing, uh, but people think he knows something because he's very smart with cars. Yeah. So it's kind of what you're saying. Yeah. And speaking of Roosevelt, um, he he's a guy who, uh, of the three, seems he's clearly gung-ho. <laughs> Um, bless you. He's clearly gung ho for uh, for war. He, um, I'm curious, <coughs> his, his his drive and his um, his need for, or, or I shouldn't say need, but um, his, his feelings about this. Uh, how much of them do you think were psychological? In the sense that um, here's a guy who grew up uh, asthmatic, um, was sort of. Uh, believed to be uh, destined to be an invalid for uh, the rest of his life. And the way he sort of came out of that was he dedicated himself to physical fitness and exercise and um, afterwards came to have this disdain for, you know, weaklings, quote unquote, or cowards. Um, so his, um, and, and of course, his father, as you talk about, um, hired substitutes fighting the civil war rather than fight himself. So was Roosevelt coming, do you think from a, a, 
arriving in this position for psychological reasons uh, or ideological reasons? I think a little, <clears throat> a little bit of my voice is going. No worries. <clears throat> We, we can also, if you'd like, we can also take a quick break and grab some water if you need. Yeah, let me get some water. This is my my third podcast interview today, so my no voice worries. is going. Uh, let me let me get a glass of water. I'll come back. No worries. All right, that's better. Yeah, this has been a busy day, as I said. No, you're, the, no. you're the third of three interviews, so <clears throat> voice starts going. I, I'm, I'm sorry, go, yes, I didn't, you were asking about Roosevelt and uh, Roosevelt's uh, psychological <clears throat> uh, relation to some of his, his decisions. I would say yes, there, that always comes into play because Roosevelt was someone who was obsessed with manliness and, and masculinity. So I think that that could not help but drive some of his his attitudes, um, and I think it also had something to do with his you know his his great desire to to serve in World War One, uh, which is which is another story in this book of, you know he's he's very discouraged by by the fact that he's not present at the time of this great crisis, and the one thing he does want to do is is go serve in the war. And at the very end of this book, you have this scene where Roosevelt, who has to go see Wilson, who he hates so much, and they ask him if he'll let him go over with his with this this division he had raised. And they have this sort of this conversation, which is went better than I would have thought it would have gone. Uh, but eventually, Wilson does turn him down and says, "No, you're not going over." And of course, that just makes Roosevelt hate him even more. But Roosevelt wanted to go over and 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 die. Basically, he said that would be a great way to end my my career would be to go over and be killed in action. And I think that was always his sense of you know his this desire to be you know manly and masculine. And what better way than to serve in the military? That's why I think I think being in you know, the Spanish-American War with the Rough Riders was one of the highlights in his own view, in his own life. Uh, so I think he wanted to replicate that in World War I. Yeah, it's it's so fascinating to see that this guy was president and, and like a pretty well-respected president as well. I mean, given sort of the psychological oddities. Um, a great president and, and, a, and, a, and a, an incredibly brilliant individual. I mean, so as was Wilson for that regard, that matter. Uh, Roosevelt had this freakish memory. I talk about in the book how he could, you know, he could even, he, had, he could remember the pages of books. He could see it in his mind. And he had, he had such a, a, talk about a sponge memory. I mean, he, he knew something about everything. And Wilson, of course, had been a PhD in, in, uh, uh, in political science and had been the president of Princeton. So he also was someone who was, who was incredibly brilliant, and as was Jane Addams, who was uh, a, a great writer and, and, and an extremely well-read and learned figure. So the three of them were, were, were remarkably intelligent individuals. Um, but I, I, yeah, I think Roosevelt always had something. There was a little something there driving him uh, in, in that direction. And maybe it, was, it does go back to childhood and with the, you know, people have, have been speculating this was for a hundred years about the impact of asthma on, on Roosevelt and, and his father, father's, father's issues. Yeah, that's, uh, the, you, you mentioned the fact that uh, Roosevelt hated Wilson even more after he refused his decision. Um, the relationship between these two men, obviously Wilson wins the presidency Roosevelt does not. I can understand some bitter feelings there. Um, but it seems like the, the first sort of mentions that Wilson made of uh, Teddy Roosevelt um, was the very first. <coughs> like glancingly positive. Uh, they, 
they started to get worse. Um, what do you think soured the relationship between these two? I think Wilson was just such a different different person from, from Roosevelt. I mean, Wilson was someone who was not obsessed with <clears throat> manliness and masculinity. And um, I, th- I think Roosevelt also just hated him that he was in the, he was, he was doing what Wilt Roosevelt wanted to do. Roosevelt wanted to be president again, and this was the man who was blocking him. And then once the war breaks out and Roosevelt is not there to be to be leading the country, it, it kills him. You know, it absolutely kills him that this guy's in there who's who represent everything he's 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 not about uh, is controlling things. And you know, he believes that Wilson is. I mean, you read some of the insults in this book of, you know, Wilson is the worst president we've ever have. He's, he's not even a real man. I mean, he, he gets really personal. I mean, he really, he really hates this man. And the funny thing is that Wilson never responds to Roosevelt because as he, Wilson said to his friends, he's like, I know the thing that bothers him the most is if I don't respond to him, that just drives him up the wall. So I won't, I won't respond to him. And it does. I mean, it, it, it kills, uh, Roosevelt that Wilson will not kind of sling mud with him. Uh, he'll do it in a very subtle way, but he'll never name him. He'll never, he'll never say uh, Roosevelt, you know, I don't believe anything Roosevelt say. He'll just, he'll, he'll get in his little dids, but he'll do it in a subtle way where you know what he's talking about, but he won't use Roosevelt's name. So it drove Roosevelt crazy that he wouldn't, he wouldn't kind of engage him in that way. And then when he has to really kind of humble himself and go see Wilson in the White House and say, you know, will you let me go to Europe once we get involved in the war in 1917? And, and Wilson holds the power in his hand. I'm sure Wilson must have loved that, that he had Wil- Roosevelt coming, uh, crawling, maybe strong, but had to come to humble himself and say, will you let me go over? And Wilson gets to make that decision and kind of crush his dreams and say, no, you cannot go over. Do you think he made that decision uh, in order to crush his dreams or because he, he logistically thought it was a bad idea? I think both. I'm sure he loved crushing him, crushing his dreams. But the 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 military didn't want Roosevelt going over. Uh, the generals, most of them, didn't want him over there. They figured he'd be a pain in the rear. You know, an ex-president traipsing around Europe and you know saying, "Well, I was commander in chief of the army. I still should have my say here." You know, I think they would have realized he would have been a liability. Um, <clears throat> and I don't think they didn't really want volunteers. They didn't want volunteer regiments like they had done during the Spanish-American War. They wanted they wanted selective service to be most to, to do most of the um, and enlistments, uh, but they didn't want people kind of bring their own private. You know, this would have been Roosevelt's private division. Would have been people serving under him. Um, they felt that would have been more trouble than it was worth. And Roosevelt was in no shape anyway to go over. He was he was not. He was about sixty years old, but he wasn't in good shape. He hadn't really taken care of himself. He was overweight. Um, he even said at the time, well, I, I probably could do a couple of weeks of good service before I gave out, you know, but well, then what are you contributing if you're doing that? I mean, so he wasn't, <clears throat> in some ways it was, it was, it was preposterous for him to think he could go over and do a whole lot. Um, he certainly wasn't going to be able to get in the trenches and he, and his, his military background was pretty limited. He, you know, he had served in the Rough Riders and, and some people felt he hadn't done a great job at the Rough Riders either. Some, some of the things he had done had been very rash. Uh, so do you really want someone like that commanding troops? Um, Wilson's secretary of, of, of war, Newton Baker, later said, he said, it really wasn't the president's call. It was my call. And I felt that he was, Roosevelt was not qualified to be commanding troops. Uh, so I, I said no. So, but it really devastated Roosevelt. I mean, it was, it was a great disappointment to him. And he was very bitter the rest of his life. I mean, he died right after the war ended. So. Uh, so it was very painful for him that he couldn't go over. And it was also painful that he lost his son. One of his sons was was killed during the war overseas, his son Quentin. Yeah, and, and this is obviously at the point where um, the, the United States is committing to go to war. Um, and you see over the course of this book, the peace movement sort of gradually loses their hold on Wilson. And as you spoke about uh, this preparedness, um, you know, and Wilson accepts it. We have to build up the military. And they still seem to have some kind of hope that maybe, you know, Wilson's their best shot at peace. Um, What was the final straw for him uh, to commit to involvement? Well, I think because the Germans decided by early 1917 that they have to win the war now. They can't win a long war. So in order to win a long war, we have to 
unleash our submarines to their full capacity. I mean, the Germans had had pulled back on them because they didn't want American involvement and they sort of like, okay, America, we will back down on our submarine use. Uh, <clears throat> so they sort of kept to their good behavior during most of 1916, but they were hoping that the United States would somehow spearhead some effort to, to bring the parties together and then the two parties would, would hash out a peace of some kind. Uh, for the Germans, ideally, allowing them to keep their gains. The Germans were winning the war pretty much by late 1916, but they knew they couldn't win a long war because you know they would get worn down. So they were hoping that Wilson would somehow help them to bring the, bring the two sides together and get peace. Uh, but when they saw that was not going to be successful, Wilson did try in late 1916, he failed. Um, the Germans decided, okay, well, we're going to go for broke. We're going to unleash the submarines uh, we're probably going to bring America into the war by doing so, but if we do, it'll be too late because we're going. Our submarines are going to succeed in starving the British into submission, and the war will be over by the fall of 1917. Too too late for the Americans to make a difference in the war, even if they do join. That was the, that was the, the the German higher ups, the military and the navy had this this notion. Um, so in early 1917, Wilson was informed of this, that the Germans are going to go back to un unrestricted submarine warfare. That was a very, very upsetting thing to Wilson and the American people because they could see that war is getting closer and closer. Uh, the other thing that's going to push Wilson into that direction is the Zimmerman telegram. The Germans had sent this crazy uh, communication to Mexico basically saying, well, war is probably coming if it does come. Uh, we will ally. We will we'll make an alliance with with you guys in Mexico if you tie up American forces on the border, and we'll even give you a chance to win back some of your territory that was taken from you uh, during the Mexican War, meaning parts of American states. It was a completely crazy, crazy scheme that had no no basis in reality. Uh, but the British intercepted this message and turned it over to the United States, and Wilson released it, and that got people very very upset even more upset at the, at, the, uh, at the Germans and made them more, more resigned towards a potential war. So those factors, the fact that the unrestricted submarine warfare was, was going to be resumed in early 1917, the Zimmerman telegram, there were a few American ships that were, gonna, that were sunk in March. But I think it all came down to Wilson deciding that uh, if, if, I, if I personally, the United States personally is going to have any kind of impact on the, on the peace and on the future of the world, America has to be involved in this war. Uh, so that's that's the way it has to be. You know, I think Wilson never really wanted to go to war, but <clears throat> he came to believe that we have to uh, be involved if he was going to have any say. You know, that they certainly the the neither side's going to listen to the United States in any peace peace treaty if we don't do some of the fighting. Mm -hmm. um, and and Wil Wilson even told Adams that Adams went to see him at this time. And he told her, he said, if we don't get into this war, I'll be lucky to be in the peace conference through a crack in the door. They might let me in through a crack and that's it. So I won't have any influence and the country will have no influence unless we do, do some fighting and get involved. Adams thought that was, that was terrible, that, that viewpoint. But Wilson clearly believed that if, if his vision for the post-war world was going to be realized, it was necessary for us to be involved in the war. So I think he became less and less reluctant to finally go forward at this time. And he will take the country into war in April, 1917. And, and as we're sort of wrapping up here, because I don't, I don't I, you know, tend not to go longer than an hour with these things. And I do want to spare your voice. Uh, I'm curious, um, you've dedicated some amount of time uh, to writing this book. Uh, I imagine it was not easy, but you were also uh, sort of in the trenches, so to speak, of all of this, uh, these historical decisions being played out. And among these three characters of Jane Addams, Teddy Roosevelt, and Woodrow Wilson, uh, is there one of them who you sympathize with the most or who you look at and say, okay, this person with, you know, the benefit of hindsight was the one who was right? I think the most interesting of the three has got to be Roosevelt. His personality is so larger than life. Uh, but I think they all have something to offer as far as how fascinating they are. I mean, like Woodrow Wilson is such a complex figure. 
I mean, the fact that we even talk about this, that he's carrying on this, this incredibly passionate love affair with, with his, with, he's wooing a widow in the middle of the Lusitania crisis. As, and the Americans would have been shocked if they knew that this guy who was an academic, who everyone saw as being prim and proper, was, was a, he was a totally different person. Uh, so he's, he's very interesting. And Adams, of course, I mean, someone who was so ahead of her time in a lot of her thought, thought processes as far as racial concerns and women and stuff like that. Um, I think they all had something to offer as far as who was right and who was wrong. I think Roosevelt was right in saying that we needed to be prepared and our military needed to be much more substantial if we were going to do any good around the world. I think Wilson was right in trying to think of international, internationally as far as countries coming together with the League of Nations, which he, you know, he, he, he got put over, which he did, they did put over after the war, but America was not part of. And I think Adams was, was correct in seeing that, you know, there's got to be other ways than war. You know, there's got to be ways that our countries can, can solve their problems without resorting to war. And there should be institutional uh, entities in place which, which can ne negotiate and resolve differences of this kind. So I think they all were on the right track. Um, sometimes they had tunnel vision as far as their view was concerned, but I think they all had something to offer as far as America was concerned. I mean, one last thing we can we can throw out there is the whole issue of whether we should have gone to war at all. There are some people who now even say that, you know, we were not threatened. Uh, there were, our national security was not at stake, and the United States could have stayed out of World War One comfortably. Um, I think Wilson, even up to the last minute, could have kept the country out of war. I think there were still plenty of Americans who would have said, "We agree with you, President Wilson. Uh, we don't want to go to war." Of course, people like Roosevelt would have been, you know, would have probably made political capital out of it and may, may have been uh, very damaging to the Democratic Party that year in 1917, you know, 1918. Um, but I think it's not like World War II where there was enormous support in the country to go to war. In, in 1917, I think there was, it was a lot more, uh, I think it was a lot more ambivalence in the country. Yeah. Um, well, on that note, uh, the book, Neil, is The Approaching Storm, Roosevelt, Wilson, Adams, and Their Clash Over America's Future. Uh, how can people find you? Uh, the best place to find me is my website, which is www.neilanctot.com. And there's, there's material on the book and some of the other books I've written. Uh, you can contact me there if you want to know more. Excellent. All right, Neil, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Thank you to Neil Langto, and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gamey. See you next time.